I just kind of rumbled along for a couple of years without thinking too hard about it. And then started to hire and start to grow out of necessity versus having planned for it and had a goal in mind, like a clear objective. And the people I see who have agencies that I notice get a lot of traction really fast, usually have some entrepreneurial experience, but they also understand where they want to go. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's conversation came from a real-life hang. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in a dark bar at a DC Junto, speaking with today's guest, and what he was saying in my direction was so good, I said, please, can we turn on some microphones and share this with the audience? Today, we're going to talk about the agency business model, which is a recurring theme on the show. Agencies can be so juicy because you can spin them up in a weekend. They can often be very profitable, and you can tack them on to what you're already doing. If you have a product business, you can often supplement your revenue by spinning up a service business on the side. In fact, that's what we do. Shout out Dynamite Jobs Recruiting. But when done poorly, founders of agencies can often find themselves trapped in the grind of wrong clients and staffing woes. Well, today's guest seems to have really nailed it, and he understands something that's working for him both in terms of revenue and lifestyle. My name is Brent Zaradnik, and uh, I have an Amazon PPC agency. It's called AMZ Pathfinder. We've been around since 2015, believe it or not. Now, just a bit of background. Like I mentioned, we were having this conversation in the pub. Brent's agency is bigger than ours, and he seems to be doing it better than us. And I was just like, I just want to learn from you, man. Come on the pod, teach us what you're doing. And I really got a lot out of this episode. I hope you do too. So some background here. Brent and I share a couple of things in common. We're both originally from the great state of Pennsylvania, and we're both committed to cycling and finding great coffee in European cities. In fact, Brent lives in the French city of Montpellier, not only because he has a French partner, but also because Southern France is amazing for that outdoors lifestyle, as well as the cycling life. A few things we cover in this conversation, and I really wanna thank him for his openness and the detail with which he shared, the mistake of not getting A players on your team earlier, and why Brent feels his nomadic lifestyle held back from his business for a while. We're also gonna share some ideas for agencies that you could start today. All that and more coming up, let's roll it. Let me know what the business looks like. Tell me your revenue or your employee count or what where your office building is or whatever. Sure, so let's start at the top of that. First part is we, primarily service ads inside of the Amazon ecosystem and increasingly off the Amazon ecosystem for businesses selling on Amazon in North America and the EU marketplaces. I think we have 26, 27 people now and revenue has been hovering around 130K a month recently. You're about 30 years old or? 33. Okay. And what age were you when you started this venture? Yeah, I think I was 26. I want to know like, why you felt you were ready to start an agency that now does $130,000 a month. Like, Why you? That's a good puzzle because I think that I'm someone who hasn't suffered from too much of what you might call like imposter syndrome that we hear a lot about in entrepreneurial circles. I mean, I certainly do here and there, 
But I think it was more like, oh, I have this like specific mission I want to accomplish and I'm going to try to throw everything I have at that. And so my uh, story to make it kind of brief is I worked at a B2B marketing agency for several years doing uh, Google ads. And that's where I got my skills with PPC advertising, specifically uh, keyword based stuff, I would say bottom mid funnel. And then some years later, I was working in a totally different industry and living in Florida. And I had a friend who approached me and said, basically, hey, I'm selling products on Amazon. I've sourced things domestically for the US. I have a nice supply chain. I got pretty high um, margins on this. The sale price is about $90. And he said, they have an advertising platform. And this is mid-summer 2015. And I said, Amazon has an advertising platform? I've never heard of that. And indeed they did. And it had just begun about a year prior, you know, 2014. And I jumped on his account. I started helping him run ads. And at the time, the CPCs or cost per click was about seven to eight cents. And these products were selling for $90. And I very quickly realized that the market that he was in was not saturated at all. The margins he was making were awesome. And so we just scaled up ads on his account. And these were like the salad days, the golden era of Amazon advertising before it became what it is now, which is like a huge part of Amazon's revenue. Brent, a lot of what people do is they listen to this show, they look for ideas to implement in their business, but also they think about how they can start a business like yours. How important was it that you were there for the early days of this platform launch versus if you were just starting, say, a year or two ago? Like, in other words, like if someone wants to duplicate your success, should they look towards platforms like TikTok, like stuff that's newer, rather than going back to older platforms that might have been around for a decade? That is a great question. So I think that entrepreneurship is two things to use a more concrete analogy. It's like surfing, right? So you can be a really good surfer. Let's use France as an example, like the mid-Atlantic French coast, not exactly known for it's like surfing. Okay, down near Spain, yeah, sure. But generally speaking, not a surfing hotspot. You can be in those waters or that body of water and you can have all the surfing skills in the world and it won't make much of a difference because there is no wave to catch. I think that what happened to me I happened to have a little bit of entrepreneurial skills, but I happened to catch the right wave at the right moment. So I would say if people are looking to jump into something, and this goes to another maxim of mine, which is like any platform over a long enough time frame will sell ads. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> so basically, if you want to have a skill that's like a service agency and you're going to manage advertising, what you might do is look at all these nascent platforms that exist and say, okay, well, eventually they're going to have ads or maybe they have some form of ads right now. And if you can find the clients that are in your wheelhouse and are willing to pay you and you have expertise built in that, you can start doing consulting or have a book of clients and do that like right away. And you might be able to catch that wave as it's starting to swell and then ride that to a very nice conclusion. So I actually give a lot of credit just to the timing, the placement and my sensibility to jump on the wave versus my entrepreneurial skill set which was kind of built through a lot of sweat, blood, and tears. I'm a slow learner. I'll put it that way. <laughs> how, and I love your answer there. How might one search for waves right now? What are some methods for exploring mm. potential surf breaks? Yeah, actually, this is a very four-hour workweek TNBA answer, but I will say there is a great newsletter out there called Trends that I have a subscription to. And like every week they send you all these trends for like online business and things that are happening online and like potential things you can do to start an agency or, or a company. And uh, I read that and I go through it and I get that classic like um, 
shiny object syndrome every single time, almost to the point where I like have to unsubscribe because <laughs> it's like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. I could do this. Or alternatively, rely on your own like personal network of people and ask around what kind of needs they have. Outside of paid advertising, where my mind is very focused, because I tried to sit down and think about this question a little bit. You mentioned TikTok. I think that's a huge area that resembles Facebook advertising in like 2018 when it was exploding, 2018, 2019. That would be a good place to get into. I definitely know agencies that are making hay off of that right now. But yeah, I'm not sure I have a better answer than that, actually. That's a good answer. I wanted to say something. I'm going to bury something in the middle of the podcast. I don't do this because it's really about you, Brent, but I want to say something controversial and then just like have it hang here because everybody wants us to do an episode about imposter syndrome. And then on the back end of the podcast, we always basically, and this isn't a bit of an admission, we kind of make fun of it. Like we don't like the topic, but I haven't really dug into why. And I think that imposter syndrome is the affliction of high ego, low accuracy people. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that part of building an agency, and I say slowly over time, because this is my first real business. I had other things that have failed in the past, right? Like small ventures I've started and all the classic online (laughs) make money stuff that you run into in the early days. But it does require some level of subsuming your ego or some level of ego suppression. Or, I mean, I think ego death is maybe a bit extreme. Like we're not like Buddha in the mountains here or something. But there is some part where you're like, well, I just got to have to sacrifice part of that. And like if I need to get in front of an audience and like be embarrassed sometimes or I need to like fall on my face publicly or half my team members criticize me, which is something that I have tried to foster a culture of at Pathfinder where people feel like they can do that. And so therefore they feel comfortable calling me out on my own problems and my own inadequacies. So you need to be able to have your ego take a lot of hits from all sides and not be like, oh no, my precious, whatever conception of myself. It's okay, man, whatever. You got 85, 90 years on this earth. And if you're going to sit around worrying about that all the time, you might not accomplish what ultimately I want to do with the agency, which is build a service that is valuable for the people who pay us, have something that is an engaging and fun career for people that are at the team and involve other people. You know, I'm very social. I like the idea of having an agency that has this team and we have a great time together and like we all enjoy each other's company. So there's that like social element of it that I love that I think that we have built. I don't take credit for this. It's a we situation because it's all of us who are attuned to the culture that I've tried to very intentionally set from the beginning. One of my caricatures of agency guy, random, because I, I used to meet these agency guys when we had like a little bit of an M&A situation going on way back in pre-podcast. An agency guy would come in, he'd have a t-shirt on with a sport jacket and like a hot little car. What I see an agency is like, all right, you're making 20% margins. You got a bunch of staff, you got a bunch of clients. There's like fires everywhere. There's a lot of stress. Like even you see it at Dynamite Jobs that if you have an agency, you have to do a harder job of selling your job because candidates believe Mm -hmm. that working at agencies sucks relative to a product company, for example, just generally speaking. And so I see this, there's this caricature out there where, okay, you're doing 130,000 a month. Your margin is 20%. So you're making this great income. Everybody can do the math. But then you got to deal with all this stuff every month, every year to make that money. And then when you try to sell it, some MFer is going to say, I'll give you two times, maybe three, but I want you to earn it out for three years to make sure that your clients love me as much as they have loved you for the Mm -hmm. past seven years. Is that fair? 
I think it doesn't need to be like that. I agree with the last part, which is, let's say, the earnout uh, valuations, because, you know, you see a lot of that in the agency space. So I won't argue with that. I won't contend with that. But I think that an agency doesn't need to be high stress. You can optimize the organization and the alignment of the people in within your agency to under-optimize for profit, but optimize more for lifestyle. And I mean lifestyle of everyone in the business, not just you as like the founder, but everyone in the business. Like, hey, here are the things we do and do not do for clients when they ask. We will not bend over backwards in this scenario. This is the objective we have here and we're going to like stick to that or we're going to stay on that path. And then clearly defining who you're working with, which I think is something else we'll maybe talk about a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about that right now. Sure. I'll... I'll break this down into two different concepts. So the first one would be the hedgehog concept, which is from the book uh, Good to Great, which is one of these like classic business books. Most of the audience has probably <laughs> heard about, if not read, but you may recall there's like uh, this three circles, right? So what you're passionate about, what can you be best in the world at, and what drives your economic engine? So if you have that conceptually figured out, you can basically craft client or customer avatars based off of that hedgehog concept or that crystallized notion of what your company is all about. And then you simply set up the agency in a way to serve that avatar. If you speak to clients or customers who are that avatar, you're going to start to learn things like their belief system, their fears, their objections, how they think about the business. And then you can basically build metrics and attributes surrounding that avatar that help you identify them. So when you see it, it's like it's in yellow highlighter and you can't not notice it. And then those are the clients you have to pursue. So it took us a long time to figure that out. In the early days, that wasn't how we operated. And I think it was definitely more stressful because we were trying to serve. How do you make a mistake? Because you're talking about pretty theoretical stuff. Can you give me like an example of making a mistake against that framework? Yeah, sure. So I can give you a very concrete one because we're approached by these kind of companies all the time. And while there may be another agency out there that can service them or a solo consultant, of which they're an increasing number in the Amazon space, we're not the right fit for them. So let's say that you have, I don't know, anywhere from like ten dollars to $40,000 in revenue a month on Amazon. And it's like a one-man band. And like maybe you have a couple of VAs or something like that. And you have a couple of products. That client is too small for us at Pathfinder, but they also simultaneously probably don't have the right kind of mindset and I would say understanding of the value that we can provide with the several kind of related services we offer. So if we were to take them on, they probably wouldn't be able to spend enough money to really allow us to make a big enough impact. So we'd be doing them a disservice by just saying like, yeah, we'll work with you for three months, which is like our minimum term for a contract. And then just say, uh, where are we after those three months? They might be much happier with someone who is, you know, they can get for a couple hundred dollars a month or maybe someone who's part-time or a VA or something that'll get them to the next level. Same thing is true for a very large client. And actually, I'm going to use a framework that I think I learned from Jody Cook, who I believe has been a guest on the pod here. Anyway, she got this maybe from somewhere else, but I'm stealing it from you anyway. Hi, Jody. But it's rabbits, <laughs> deer, and elephants. So it's this framework, right? And the core idea of this is like a hunting metaphor. So we're both from Pennsylvania. We know about hunting deer. <laughs> as a common practice. But basically you have rabbits, which are like small, easy to get type clients. You can catch many of them, but it's a rabbit. So it doesn't feed you for very long. And then you have deer, which is kind of in the middle. And you can eat the meat from a deer for a while, actually. But there's fewer of them. They're much harder to catch. It takes a lot of skill, energy, and time. And then you have elephants. And there's very few elephants, but you can catch an elephant. It just takes a lot of time. 
energy and the whole team to help out, right? It's not like a one person thing, like one sales guy can't do it or one founder can't get on a couple of calls and make that sale. And similarly with elephants, when something's wrong with an elephant, it's causing trouble. Everyone on the team has to drop what they're doing and help out <laughs> because the raging elephant is a very uh, serious situation. So for us, we are very focused on the deer clients. We're firmly in the middle. And I know people that own agencies that focus on rabbits and those that focus on elephants, which is like more like CPG brands and like household names like Adidas and stuff like that. So instead of forcing your team to bend over backwards and accommodate to an, an elephant or a rabbit, we just stick with the deer and everything in our agency is aligned around that. So we understand their fears, we understand their needs, and we have referral partners for things we can't do. And we just align everything in that direction, quite simply. One of the reasons I want to talk to you, Brent, is your agency is exactly twice the size of mine in terms of revenue. And you represent a future that I would like to get to. And I'm wondering if you could bring us back in time a little bit and note for us key revenue, team size, or any other metric, like when things changed in terms of your role and how you thought about running the business. Yeah, sure. And I think it's because I'm more of a social individual and I'm extroverted. I think about this more in terms of team size versus revenue. Like I could probably rattle off relative revenue figures, but really the way that I've seen things shift in Pathfinder over the years is team size. And let me underline that. Basically, I've been working through a bunch of different group coaching systems, Brent. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is that the types of systems you need is more highly correlated to team size than to revenue. And a lot of people in our industry, because we have global teams, we actually have larger headcounts per revenue than a lot of traditional tech companies who are optimizing for the opposite. Like San Francisco companies are remarkable for how few employees they have per revenue. Whereas I've run into people who run half a million dollar businesses that'll have like 15 people working for that business because a lot of them are based in the Philippines as an example. Communicating with five or six people is very easy relative to 15 people. I agree 100%, Dan. Actually, when you're, there's a handful of you in a free Slack channel, every one of you is wearing several hats simultaneously. But what you need to do when you get to, I'd say nine or 10 people is maybe the first cliff or like hurdle that we uh, encounter is actually sit down and think about the hierarchy and structure of the company. You need to eventually figure out an org chart, right? And be intentional about that and be intentional about culture. So when you're nine or 10 people, you can still hold those weekly like one-to-ones with almost everyone on the team. And you can also know what people are up to professionally and personally. Now, as you start to get to like the mid-teens, it becomes very necessary to draft that org chart with seats on it that are not labeled individual people, but like seats at the company. And then also role responsibilities, which is something that we are very big on at Pathfinder, which is saying, what are the responsibilities and the mindset for each of the roles at the company and how can the person in this seat exhibit those? And those are tweaked constantly. In fact, later today, I'm on a train ride. I'm going to be looking at those for our company. Additionally, at that level, I really like to have people on a path where they can be promoted internally. So I'm a big fan of promoting internally. Now, where we are at the mid-20s to like 30-ish level, this is where you have to truly let go as a founder and pick the zone of genius, the zone of like area of interest you want to stay in and stay in that lane. Don't step on other people's toes. Let them do their job. 
You need to deeply trust the people that you have given responsibility for the different departments and rely on them as your point of contact. It's no longer feasible for you to take one-on-one calls or to keep up with everyone else's personal life and the team like you did when there were six or seven of you. What are the constraints when you're going from, say, $50,000 a month to $130,000 a month? Is it a matter of delivery capacity, like building up your operations, people who are managing accounts or managing ads in your case, or is it building up your sales or is it a constant juggle of just like kind of shimmying back and forth between selling and marketing versus that delivery capacity? For us, it's always been a question of delivery. So there's only so many hours in a day that everyone has and we want to respect people's time and make sure that they're not always at the computer. (laughs) Basically, we want to make sure that they are using software to the best of their ability. They're networking with people in the industry to learn new tactics, and they're applying both those things consciously so that they can spend the right amount of time at the computer getting things done. So it's always, in the PPC world at least, it's about balancing that headcount and then demand from client accounts. Not so much operationally. I think that comes later when you have more scale or there's more complexity to the service that you're delivering. But it's a constant seesaw, I think. And you need to be able to forecast to the best of your ability based on seasonality and also how things are looking in the sales pipeline. So you track all those metrics and then determine how many more people we're going to need to hire or if we're going to need to like let off the gas and hiring for a little bit because we expect a flat period or something like that. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out, click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. Go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs, the hiring platform for remote first companies. How do you structure the company financially? Can you tell me what do you look at to tell you what's happening from a numbers perspective? And then what do you aim for? Like I have some frameworks in my head, Brent, where I think if I'm running an agency, I wanna make sure that my staff cost is less than 30%. I don't know where I get it from. Mm. So I'm asking you, what do you do in terms of like where that money goes and how do you look at it? Yeah, that's actually common wisdom, I think, Dan. That's one you hear bantered around a lot. And actually I disagree with that. Because I've also heard, oh, 30, 30, 30, which is basically 30% for software and tools, 30% for people on the team, and then 30% or so for margin. I'm not sure where the other 10% goes of that 30, 30, 30 equation, but that's what I've heard, right? And my experience tells me. Well, there's also, I mean, we have a, a cost of goods sold. So in terms of our agency, we spend money promoting the jobs. 
so that would be a, a high cost of goods for us. You know, that would be like mm. 20, 25% there. And then you got 30% staff and then you got 20% software and tools and you're aiming for a 20% margin. So that's mm. basically the framework I'm working off of. And when I look at QuickBooks and my cash flow performas, that's kind of what I'm aiming for. So yeah, let me know how you think about it. That's really interesting that you do it differently. Sure. I slightly disagree with the 30 and I think the numbers you threw out sound better, but I will say for us and my direct experience, the most important asset at Pathfinder is the people for sure. So I don't see why we shouldn't be spending more of a percentage on the people. And honestly, the way things are heading in the Amazon PPC market, the demand for people who have skills has far outstripped the supply. So we have to pay people really serious wages, regardless of where they're from. We're usually paying people based on skill set versus location, which I think is a hot debate in the remote work world now that you've probably entertained. Has that debate manifested itself inside your company? Not necessarily, because I think we pay pretty well. So if someone has a issue with their pay, they'll like bring it to us directly. It's not like a conversation that happens too much publicly. It also helps that we understand what the market rate is. Like for someone who's like a senior account manager has a serious amount of Amazon ads talent. No, they're going for a pretty high rate these days. And then you have people who are like operational and those are more standardized, like outside of the Amazon industry. And we have performance reviews every once in a while and a pay and the bonuses and stuff like that. So a lot of agency owners, and I'm, we're going to circle back to the financial question, yeah. but there is this kind of thing when you're like selling labor that if you have like great tools and processes as a company, you can drive your labor costs down. So, hey, you don't need a great account manager because like all you got to do is follow Brent's ultimate guide to advertising on Amazon and like anybody that makes 20 bucks an hour can do it. I just think I disagree with that as an assertion because I would rather have people who are super smart, pay them a little bit more and then let them figure out a lot of the problems. So for instance, with Amazon, there are three main ways to do ads. There's through the API, which means software. There's bulk operations, which is like uh, using Excel flat files. And then there's the interface itself. I don't want to give people a prescriptive method for managing accounts. I want them to be the ones who are smart enough to figure out which blend of those three tools they're going to go in and use to drive client outcomes. Because what I ultimately care about for them is what outcomes they drive for clients, how long it takes them to do it, so they're not spending an excessive amount of time doing it and how well they can explain it and it meshes with the rest of the team's operations. I don't want to give them a playbook so they don't have to think. I encourage people to think. And I think that's a pretty common thread you see in the online business community, which is like, oh, they'll just follow these SOPs and then they won't have to be proactive. I definitely want people who are proactive. So I'm okay spending more on people as a percentage. And to get back to that idea, I think ours is probably closer to 40, 45%, quite honestly. And our tools are probably 20, 30%. And then we have an increasing percentage that's probably eating into those other two. That is like marketing and sales, which I can <laughs> speak to more. But that gives us, you know, roughly at most 25%, maybe 15, like where we are now, like mid to high teens level of actual margin, actual profit. We are investing heavily right now in some software tools and data stuff that's coming up on Amazon. So we have a lot of expenses related to that, like a data person who is not cheap. And that will fluctuate in agency. But I love putting out the common wisdom because I want listeners to defy it and challenge it and give us their thoughts. But the idea that you're aiming as a agency owner for 15 to 25 percent margins sounds about right. I mean, that's more or less what we're aiming for, typically speaking. 
I still want to get back to the financial dashboard, but I'm so tempted to hear about your marketing and sales. Why now? <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to tell you a, a kind of a funny story. So basically, I, if I had to sit down like I did the other day and think about things in preparation to talk to you about this, I had like a mistakes made list. It feels like a bit of a confessional. And one of the mistakes I definitely made is relying on what I'd call rain versus a faucet. And by that, I mean, think about water as the metaphor here for growing your garden, where garden is like revenue or the growth of your company. Pathfinder as a company, we relied on rain for many years. And I actually had a friend in 2018 who uh, was explaining to me on a call once, oh, I have this like uh, cold email sequence and it goes to a video thing. And then I give them like a customized audit thing and whatever. And I was like, man, he's doing so much work. Just go to a Facebook group and like post a couple of answers to like people's questions about Amazon PPC. Check your inbox the next day. You got five new clients. What's the problem? <laughs> because for years, that's the way it was. And that's part of this riding the wave that I mentioned earlier, right? I happened to jump on the right wave. And I found out more recently, I would say in the last two years, that actually that's not normal for agencies, right? This is an anomaly in a very narrow pocket of time. And so that was a rare circumstance and signing quality clients is actually much harder. And so now only in the past year and a half, have we tried to make serious outbound efforts. I've gotten out of the sales role, which is the last thing that I did poorly. And we have a full-time <laughs> B2B salesperson now who actually handles that. And I wish, if I have some regrets about the company, I wish that I put this in place in like 2017. And that's a skill set in a muscle that I, you know, did a lot of reps with because I think we'd be in a better position than we are now just in terms of size and market position and everything. Why aren't you a better salesperson? That's one of the last thing founders want to give up because like, man, Brent's out there, the most motivated, he's going to cut deals. You know, he's going to bring in the deer. That's right. Going to bring in the deer. <laughs> Rifle or bow, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's a good question. I think that I, for so long, was so enthusiastic, yet again, about the social aspect of it, that I love talking to potential clients and explaining to them in great detail and great length all the great technical things we can do for them and how wonderful it is and the results we've got. And, you know, I find that very, very effective and, like, it, you know, motivated them and got them hyped up. And that was effective for a long time. But that, that didn't have much of a process behind it. That was really cowboy style sailing, shooting from the hip. And I was never someone to sit down and read a bunch of sales books. So I think the key insight I had with our sales guy now is hire somebody who knows B2B sales and comes from that background and then teach them Amazon and explain to them the benefits of what we do and have them take technical examinations so they are up to the level of explanation that they need to be, which is not the level that I had at that time, you know, because I had the curse of the agency founder who is also the practitioner and is very passionate about what we're delivering. And so that technical know-how was great for selling. I can answer any question and I love doing it. But then my area of expertise or area of um, genius, if you want to call it that, which is zone of genius, I've heard this slung around. We really need to find a new term. Yeah, it sounds you know? really, talk about ego. <laughs> my, zone, my zone of genius is sounding like a douchebag. <laughs> Let's think of a new term. Um, area of expertise. It didn't need to be evolved. You know, area of expertise works just fine. Or I should say the need for what I needed to do in the business shifted, right? It turned into other things like, oh, okay, I need to be the face of it. I need to drive growth in like new service areas. I can't be servicing things. I can't be dealing with sales because it was a full-time job. So that's when that person you, needed so to So you're on. the classic baker who opened a bakery. Yeah. Which is the e-myth kind of fundamental metaphor, which the baker who starts a bakery thinks that they're 
like it's the cakes that are the things. Yeah, and the baker doesn't realize that actually their job is going to be finding a bulk supplier of flour at a good enough price and getting that logistically shipped to the bakery and making sure that bugs don't eat it versus, oh, I get to make these beautiful breads. Yeah, you're right. I have the curse of the technical founder and also did not understand until a couple of years in that money is fuel for growth inside of a business and is supposed to be channeled intelligently towards that end versus me taking it out as profit, essentially, and using it to fund my lifestyle. I did several years traveling around in kind of the nomad sense that we all know and love on TMBA, but I never had the foresight to realize, oh, I should be reinvesting this in employees and software and in a team and other things like that. And that is another regret or mistake I have. And if I look hindsight 2020. What are some others? Not hiring soon enough or aiming high enough with my hiring. So part of the founder's job is to sell a vision of where the company is going and get people excited for that vision and that direction. And that's the potential hires. Part of your job in an agency, like you said, there is some perception that, oh, it's like a uh, boiler room and people are going to be chewed up and spat out, which yet again, I disagree with. I think that's definitely the norm, but it's possible to move away from that. And when I was hiring people at first, I wasn't ambitious enough about who I was chasing. I thought, oh, I can't pay this person's salary. I mean, that's going to be a huge number. I probably could have afforded it at the time based on the clients we had. And maybe that would have led to faster growth and less mistakes with hiring people who are cheaper. But now in hindsight, oh no, they weren't the right fit for X, Y, and Z reason. So being more ambitious and having courage or confidence to hire somebody who really is that A-level player that you know is good because you recognize quality when you see it. If you have any experience hiring people, but you're like, oh, I can't afford that person. or They're not motivated to work here. Well, if you can sell them the vision, if you can afford to pay them what they're worth, you should do it. I agree and actually was a huge turning point in our agency. It was bringing in Greg, who is obviously commands a, a huge salary. I mean, these, you know, senior level recruiters that work for tech companies. And then you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I'm just, you know, this guy who knows about building remote teams or whatever. How could I ever have like a Google recruiter work for me? Mm -hmm. But it was precisely that decision that allowed us to maintain such a high level of service and price point. That interaction with the clients, like that real recognized real, like that's what clients are paying for in an agency setting, that you understand my business better than I do. If you don't trust that person that they understand your business, then you're just moving on. That initial impression is super important. What other regrets do you have? I think the last most important one I have here is not starting with the end in mind. So... When I started Pathfinder, what I wanted to do was go to Asia and I wanted to travel around and make a couple thousand dollars and have some clients. That's fine. That's a great goal. I encourage everyone to think about doing that. But if you do understand that what you're starting now is something that has potential to snowball into something much bigger. And I had lacked the foresight to, to understand that and never thought, oh, okay, well, maybe in a year or two, I'll have an agency with 15 people. I should start thinking about that and planning that framework around that and start to learn and gather resources, talk to mentors, reach out to people who are at that position now. I just kind of rumbled along for a couple of years without thinking too hard about it and then started to hire and start to grow out of necessity versus having planned for it and had a goal in mind, like a clear objective. And the people I see who have agencies that I notice get a lot of traction really fast, usually have some entrepreneurial experience, but they also understand where they wanna go. Like they have a very clear vision. We need to be at this much revenue and that's probably gonna require this many people. The structure of the team is gonna look like this. 
I'm going to work with a recruiting company or I'm going to focus on hiring high quality people who can help me fill this role. And if I have to invest and lose money or break even for a long time to get there, we'll build a system such that in that year time frame, we will be at this headcount in this revenue model. Our growth was much slower, was much more organic and was almost like against my, I wouldn't say against my wishes, but like against my natural tendency towards like laziness for it. <laughs> One of the things I love about agencies is, and I also don't love about agencies is that they really bring out the entrepreneur in you. It's like going to the gym for entrepreneurs, you know, they respond really well to great entrepreneurship. Like you just said, they typically have experience. Like sometimes you have a product company and you could have supply chain issues. You could have channel issues, whatever. But like, if you're running an agency, like a lot of that is a reflection of you in the marketplace. You have to manage a staff, you have to bring in sales. And I wanted to ask you how you manage your money. What do you look at? on a weekly or monthly basis? What numbers are you looking at? How do you think about financial management in terms of running your company? I'll preface this with one thing, which is that Pathfinder was a bootstrapped company. In 2018, I took on two business partners who put some money in the company, but in hindsight, I didn't use that to really grow explosively. We potentially could have at that time. And maybe it's just due to my own, I'm a big believer in this. Like if people have issues with money, in their own mindset and the way they approach life, it's probably going to translate into their business. And for me, that was certainly the case. You know, I've always been someone who's very, very, let's say like thrifty and I save a lot and I didn't have that foresight to deploy the capital. So only more recently, when I have someone who is a CFO on the team and I talk to her on a biweekly, sometimes monthly basis about where we are, I have a better picture of that. So I'm on top of our p I understand like our cash on hand. I have a pretty good idea of what's flowing in and like how long we get, it takes to get paid by clients. And so we maintain a pretty healthy balance in all of our accounts. You have a finance person. Is she full-time or fractional? She's full-time. Started out as a part-time bookkeeper and eventually went full-time with us. Yeah, she headed up an accounting team or finance team at a hot dog casing manufacturing company in Minnesota, but she's from the Philippines. I love that luxury of having someone like that on your team. I fantasize about having a controller or a CFO someday. I really want to encourage listeners to take the financial function in their business more seriously. You mentioned you have business partners, but they're not active partners, right? They capitalize your company and they're like advisors, which is an incredible situation to put yourself in that people just want to put money on your plate. Pretty cool. Yeah. And actually one of them was a former client who exited his business on Amazon and then approached me and uh, someone else who he does a lot of deals with, but jumped in on it as well. So relied heavily on their network, their skills, their advice. I would say it was kind of like taking on a mentor who also had some skin in the game. And I benefited tremendously from that because that accelerated my own, I would say, entrepreneurial skill set and journey very quickly. The growth trajectory and the direction of Pathfinder from early 2018 Uh, looks very different from prior to that point. So the way I thought about it, and maybe this is not a complete, you know, comprehensive view, but if we could grow the pie, even if my slice of the pie share of the company is smaller, well, it doesn't matter if the pie is bigger because we all make out better in the end. And the two of them have been uh, just excellent. One of the things that's like pretty striking about you and like being in Europe and we were just hanging out the other night and it was just so much fun. And like you would fit right the heck in in Austin. You know what I mean? Like you are just <laughs> sweet spot, torque band, Austinite, man. You Like no one would question that you live in Austin, that you come down to the co-working spot. We talk about bikes. We talk about our favorite coffee spot or whatever. You would fit right in. 
but I'm willing to bet that you just don't fit in that well in Marseille. It's not quite the same fit. Do you feel like a man out of time or do you feel like you're swimming upstream? What is the experience of running an agency at this level, but living in a secondary French city? Yeah, I agree with man out of time or man out of place maybe is more accurate. So you know this as well as anyone, Dan, there's kind of a theory that this kind of Western Europe, Southern Europe, Mediterranean culture or lifestyle is not exactly the thing that's going to put fire under your butt for growing a company and scaling a company and having these kind of like interactions. So the way I get that is I go to conferences and I go to events and I talk to people who are in my network. And that always, for me, gives me like a shot in the arm of adrenaline or like a fire under my butt that's like, wow, I can't believe these people are doing such incredible things. I need to take notes on this, keep in touch with them, execute on these things. And I'll admit I stay in my bubble a little bit here in Montpellier, but I do have a couple of people locally who I can reach out to and talk to and trips to places like Paris where I'd have some entrepreneurial friends there as well. I would say that the language is still a barrier. I speak French all right, but when it starts to get into more complicated business topics and some of the vocab and things surrounding that are, are more difficult. So you have to rely on, and I'm very thankful for the uh, international nature of business and how it's conducted these days. I think COVID actually really helped us all with that because I used to tell people, we have a remote team and they'd be like, wow. And now no one, no one cares. Yeah, groups like the DC, of course, of which I've been a member since 2016 are a huge uh, boon to that as well because I've made lifelong friends there, people whose advice I can really trust and rely on. And another thing, if you want to go to a cool party, just throw it yourself. So one thing I'm working on locally here is creating an entrepreneur group and then hosting meetups and getting people together and having a place where we can talk. And I'm not doing that because I think, oh man, I'm going to get so many great clients, probably no clients at all. But the idea is to keep that same drive sustained and provide fuel for that and then give to other people who are in uh, similar positions like I was maybe years ago, or maybe I'll meet people who are years ahead of me. So I'm okay to try that. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I try to do that in online spaces too. For instance, I do host a monthly call for PPC agency owners and professionals in the Amazon space. Brent, 80% of our listeners are business owners, 20% want to be business owners, and they certainly would want to be in your position where they can travel the world, they can live in a beautiful place, they can make a really good income. What sort of advice do you have for them? If you were going to start an agency today and it couldn't be Amazon ads, what would it be? I think I would focus on larger to like mid-market companies and try to sell them a discrete service that they all need and that maybe it's more of an elephant style client and it takes longer to do, but it's more secure. It probably pays better. And if we can provide something that takes away a lot of hassle and pain from them and like their department or their area of work, then that would be probably a great business. I just think there's so many interesting softwares out there. I love this idea of like using a software for you as a business. That's really cool. You guys have alluded to that many times on the show. And I can see something like that. That's quite inspiring to me. If you become a domain expert at like, I don't know, in insert any kind of like email marketing software here or like ad platform, maybe it's on Amazon, but something else that drives clear results that are easy to measure like advertising so often does. I just watched an elephant sales process go down, friends looking over at their laptop and they work for an elephant and I saw the agency pitch and I saw like just how that sales process went down and I thought, man, that's a DCer on the other side of this. And in this particular case, it was an agency that does Twitter threads. 
very specific. Like, hey, we are going to start with the audit and then we're going to do this. And then like we are going to write great Twitter threads that represent your persona and your brand. Right. And you can actually get a decent amount of revenue at scale if you have the process for that and you keep up with whatever's new in the Twitter space or the Twitter thread space, as it were. (laughs) And one idea that I got from uh, Noah Kagan, who's, of course, guest and friend of you guys, is like anything that has a built-in network effect is really smart. So a lot of the way that we have grown over the years and continue to grow is we have a really good reputation as an agency for being just like ethical and honest with people. So it's like, hey, this is going to work or we think you should do this. We give business advice in addition to advertising management, right? Because people ask us, we give them the best advice we can. And so people will tell other sellers at conferences or in private Facebook groups or in masterminds about us. And sometimes we'll just get a couple clients out of nowhere that just say, oh, well, we heard about you in like uh, mastermind group X. It's like, oh, okay. So there's a built-in network effect that is... Yet again, that's talking about rain. That's not like building a faucet to turn on revenue or turn on leads, but it is really nice. (laughs) Well, Brent, thanks for uh, dropping by the TMBA podcast, man. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Big shout out to my guy, Brent Zeratic. If you have thoughts or ideas about anything we've covered today, imposter syndrome, agency profit structure, the kind of staff you should be hiring, anything else we want to hear from you, I'm Dan at TropicalMBA.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to TropicalMBA.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.